Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. To go through. Um, if, if you don't mind, Dr. Stefan, I'd like to ask kind of just before we get into your talk, we've been asking a lot of our uh, lecturers just kind of what exactly their path has been up to this point. What, what drove you into, you know, what's the fascination with minimally invasive surgery, academic medicine? What kind of brought you here? Um, so, you know, when I was at Columbia, um, there was no such thing as laparoscopy in the 1990s, um, or it was extremely early on. Uh, I worked with some giants, uh, Dr. Olson, Dr. Benson, uh, Dr. Hensel, as well as many others. And, you know, it was maximally invasive surgery. Um, you know, you did an nephrodectomy, and, you know, the first thing that most of the surgeons would do after you started to open and exposed was tell you no this this decision is way too small we need to make this bigger mm -hmm. and um you know i started thinking there's just got to be a better way you know there there's no reason i need to make a 21 inch incision to take out a kidney there's got to be a better way and uh it was right around that time that laparoscopy uh, uh with ralph clayman and others have begun to sort of hit the field um claude abu uh, a very famous surgeon of France came and visited us, uh, and he did a seven-hour uh, laparoscopic pyeloplasty. Um, and despite it taking seven hours, I was still fascinated by it. And I said to myself, I was looking for a niche, uh, something I could really, you know, go deep into. And that's what, what that's what it drove me was uh, laparoscopy, uh, minimally invasive. And so I was lucky enough to have a fellowship at Cornell. And even back then, it really wasn't what we know today. I mean, we were we thought we were super advanced. We were doing hand-assisted laparoscopy. <laughs> and obviously, the field has grown over the last uh, two decades. Yeah. And um, it's exciting. And so in terms of academics, I think having the opportunity to work with residents and medical students um, really affords you the ability to follow your passions academically because they, they help and they motivate and they engage and they challenge you every single day. And I really feel I'm, I'm where I am today. One, because I, you know, as, a, as the cliche goes, I stand on the shoulders of the giants before me, but I would also suggest that even more importantly, I'm here because of all of the interactions uh, I've made with the residents, my fellows and the students throughout the years who've constantly challenged uh, me, pushed me and made me think differently. Sure. No, I, I think um, it's amazing to see, um, you know, someone like you, I mean, for, for me, and when we talk about lineage, um, you know, seeing a lot of the speakers who have come from Columbia um, and where they are now, it's amazing. And I, I think, uh, yeah, like you said, standing on the shoulder of giants, you get to see all these people, where they were and where they're at now and where they come from. I think if you have an opportunity after your talk, maybe we can do it in the private uh, function, but if you could tell me some inside stories about Dr. McKiernan or anyone else. <laughs> Man, that would be great. No, that's going to that's require a couple of cocktails, um, <laughs> and that is not going to happen. We'll, we'll save it. We'll <laughs> but I, I, I love to always hear stories about, um, you know, the, the, the... It was, I'll just give you one quick antidote for those listening. We always knew that Jim was, um, was, was bound to, for greatness. That's so awesome. 
as an intern, his nickname was the professor. <laughs> um, you know, all of, we had four residents and all of us, uh, and I'm, I'm probably very similar now, but um, the, you know, the junior residents are responsible for tumor board and for grand rounds every week. Hasn't changed. It, it hasn't changed. Um, and it's probably been like that for the hundred and so years since uh, Squire started it. And, you know, it was very clear early on, you know, I would take four or five hours to try to prepare. I'd stay up all night. I'd make my presentations. Jim could put it together within like uh, less than an hour and still know more than most of the attendings in the room. So at that point, he was nicknamed the professor and um, his obviously, you know, his contribution to urology is, is tremendous. Yeah. And is a great friend, a great colleague, and I, I send a lot of patients to him today because of his uh, all the that's, great things he's done. So you're very lucky, super lucky to have him. Yeah, no, we are, and it's amazing to see how far you guys have come. Well, with that said, I'll I'll turn it over to you, uh, Dr. Simon. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look super. forward to um, your talk. All right, so I'm going to take over now. Um, this is going not. There's going to be zero data in this talk. I'm not going to put any slides on data up. I'm not going to put any you know, my experience or his experience or her experience on, the, on, the, on this slide. This is gonna be a show and tell. Um, this is gonna be interactive. What I'm gonna do first is I'm just going, um, and I, I don't have the ability to see all the other people on the screen, so I can't call on people. So um, I don't know maybe how this works. Maybe the Zoom moderator, can you can call on people for me. But I do want I do want to try to make this interactive. I don't want to just keep talking to you. Okay. Try so um, you can learn great things from your mistakes when you aren't busy denying them. And I think that's an extremely important concept to think about when you're in the OR. Uh, so easily we want to say, oh, it was the patient's fault, or he was too fat, or the tumor was too big, or you know, I didn't have the assistant, or I didn't have this. And we always look for reasons why it wasn't our fault. And I would argue anytime you have a complication, you really need to look inwards and figure out what happened and what you can do differently. So um, positioning is where everything starts and it's really extremely important. Um, this, came, this slide's a few years old. Uh, this came from Ronnie Abaza, but he did a literature search and he found that 12% of all malpractice claims were peripheral nerve injuries. And uh, we are getting better and our times with robotics is getting much quicker. But when we used to take three to four hours or five to seven hours to do cases, this was a bigger problem. So being very careful of positioning is important. Um, this was a, a case of mine. Um, this was a, uh, this patient was from NYU. They had a robotic pyeloplasty, it's like 15 years ago, it was about four or five hours, BMI of 45, look like a football player. Can anyone guess what's going on right here? How about Steve Richards? I saw him on the phone. <laughs> All right, no one's jumping in. All right, so I guess I'm going to have to do this solo. Um, hopefully I'll have the opportunity to do this in person with live people here. Um, I do see part, some participants. I'm going to throw that to the side of the screen. Is that? Can you see what I'm seeing, or are you just seeing the, the PowerPoint? Uh, we we can see uh, the picture PowerPoint. And Dr. Richards did respond. He's he's muted. Um, let me. Uh, well, I'm going to. Steve's easy because he was my good friend in, in, in medical school. So um, 
I'm going to pull pick on. So when I pick, when I call your name, unmute yourself and tell me what you think it is. So let's go with Jason Aliguav. What do you think is going on? 54 year old male, BMI 50. He's going back to the OR. He has something really bad going on there. All right, I'm gonna continue on. This gentleman has compartment syndrome. So he started to complain of some numbness and pain in his right extremity. Um, we uh, got a CPK on him. It was uh, 25,000. At that point, we examined him. Um, we found it was extremely hard. We probably did things in reverse order. Um, this is extremely hard, rock hard area. And he had gluteal compartment syndrome. And that's a pretty common thing. Not common, but that can happen when you're up on your side for a while. Um, it can also happen with your calves, with your stirrups for a while. So that's gluteal compartment syndrome. That gentleman needs a fasciotomy. Uh, he got incision from basically the top of the screen to the bottom of the circle. Um, he was in rehab. He was in the hospital for two weeks, in rehab for another two weeks. And he was not happy. Let's just say that. He came in for a minimally invasive robotic pyeloplasty to improve his kidney function. That was only working 30%. And he walked out with an incision basically along his entire hip and it could replace his hip. Um, thank God he did better. But again, you've got to be careful. And these things can happen. Okay, so we're going to keep moving. Um, that was access. So this is a case of, uh, I'm just going to go back to the beginning, set this up. So this is a direct OptiView. Um, so the patient was um, supposedly insufflated. Uh, this is not my, these are all, aren't all my cases. And here you can see they've got a camera going through the OptiView port and they're going in and now he's in and he's looking around that does not look normal and then they, they turn the camera a little bit and that looks not normal that looks like a colonoscopy um, and that's what this basically person had they had their trocar placed into the colon so when someone has previous abdominal surgery um and um you're trying to get in safely. Um, Dr. Moshin, um, if you can unmute yourself, tell me what the best spot on the abdomen is to get access on a patient with a hostile abdomen. You know, I'm gonna let anyone jump in at this point. Just unmute yourself and, and talk. I'll give you five seconds. It's gonna be like a left, lightning round. Left upper quadrant. Which one? Left upper quadrant. Excellent, and what's that called? McBurney's point. Perfect. You got it right. So that's exactly where you're supposed to be. Left upper quadrant is where you need to put that access. Um, I've learned that myself on the unfortunate way. And this is that case, same case where they then took a five millimeter, went into the left upper quadrant um, with the visual operator um, and again got in and then they were able to insufflate and they could see as they're looking around, just they had a really bad day. Right, this was just really bad luck. The only piece of intestine that was stuck up to the abdominal wall was the intestine that they went into. So take home message, you got a hostile abdomen, even better than a Hassan Trocar, I would argue, would being doing a McBurney point um, access. Okay, so um, <clears throat> we don't use bladed trocars anymore. 
Um, but, and if you do, I would suggest you don't, because here's a great example of why not to use a bladed trocar. So this is a, uh, a patient, this was a live surgery case done back in the early uh, late 90s, maybe early 2000s. This was a laparoscopy case. Uh, Renee Satolo shared this with me. Um, you just saw right there, he started putting in, and he was having trouble, so he rearmed it. Usually when you're having trouble putting the trocar in, it means your skin incision is not big enough. It should go in very smoothly with a twisting mechanism. And if you're pushing like he did at this part of the case, and I'll show you again, he's pushed, he couldn't get it in, he had it in, it reactivated, and now he's pushing, and he goes in. And nothing, and it looks a little deep in the skinny guy, but nothing terrible. He then puts his scope in, they go picture in picture, and they see a lot of blood all of a sudden. So what do you do now? Well, if you saw this, um, Ariana or Ashok, what would you do? Open surgery. I'll quickly open the abdomen. Yeah. So yeah. at this point, you have no tools to work with. You don't have anything to put pressure on. I kind of agree. You got to open the abdomen. You know, one thing you could try to do is stick the trocar onto the hole as you open up the abdomen. So you know, they're looking around. They're obviously realize we have a huge problem. They saw some blood over there. They go back in a second time to look, and I think they're trying to put pressure onto the, um, onto the aorta, and they decide that's not working. We need to stop that. Um, and you can see, I think this is where they're trying to put the pressure onto the aorta. They, they saw the bleeding clearly coming from a large vessel. Um, here they are packing, and at this point, um, as you will see, the video goes dead. As, you, as all the blood comes up. My understanding, this patient, this patient did not have a good outcome. They did not get off the table. So, you know, simple thing, putting a trocar in, you can easily get into intestine, you can easily injure something inadvertently, you can get in. So it's a very, very careful. And, you know, if you do a, if you're not doing Hassan technique and you're doing um, just a, an incisional, certainly if you have um, some, anybody who has, um, a uh, hostile abdomen McBurney's point. So I'm gonna focus on upper tract urinary tract complications. I've got also lower tract complications, but we'll focus on this. For this talk, since I have a limited time, let's talk about ureteral injuries. So I'm gonna show you ureteral injury. Um, this is a case of mine. Uh, this happened about two, a year and a half, two years ago. So right here you have a, a 16 year old with an extremely large AML. She's got tubular sclerosis. This is the kidney. This whole thing is the AML. She was embolized. It did not shrink. It still had blood flow to it. And based on the size, we went ahead and we went to do a partial nephrectomy robotically. Um, so again, I'm just showing you some pictures of how big this was, but it was very exophytic. And what I'm showing you here is um, this is where we're taking it off right here is, is where we took it off the kidney. So this is the kidney here. And this right little uh, char charcoal area is where we excise it from the kidney. So it's, it wasn't a very deep tumor. At this point, what we've done is the kidney is now completely flipped over. So what was medial is now lateral. And what was lateral is now medial. I literally have flipped the entire kidney over to get access to where it was attached was on the posterior side. So this is a posterior surface of the kidney the kidney has been flipped over 
and I am disoriented. And so again, I freed it up and I'm seeing this is the gonadal vessel and I'm cutting this and my resident says, what is that structure? And I ignored my resident. I go, it's nothing. That structure is nothing. It's too lateral to be anything. Not putting in my brain that I have flipped the kidney completely 180 degrees toward myself. And as you can see, that would be the ureter. Um, so that wasn't a good day either. So now we have the ureter and um, I'm gonna stop here. So what do we do now? Let's go with Benjamin Pang. Um, you have now completely transected the ureter with um, cautery, with bipolar. What are you gonna do? I'm gonna take away from Ben. I'm gonna ask, um, anyone can jump in at this point. Any resident. Okay, you're too busy calling your attending right now to see what to do. All right, I'm gonna ask Sam Ali. Sam, what would you do? Sam, no one wants to join. All right, I'll just keep going for time. Hey. Yes. Yeah, I, would, I think you could do a re uh, primary reanastomosis. So what are the thing, the three things you have to be sure of when you do a primary reanastomosis? You have enough legs. Yeah. Uh, the, the edges aren't damaged from thermal cautery. Yeah. And how are you going to do that? So if you need more length, what could you do to get more length? Uh, you could do a nef uh, nephropexy. Super. And if you wanted to make sure the edges were clean and uh, healthy, what could you use? Uh, you could use ICG. Perfect. Exactly. So those are the things I wanted you to think about before you repaired it, is you got to make sure, A, there's enough length, and you got to make sure that there is um, good blood flow. So here we are uh, mobilizing the ureter off of the medial pole of the kidney up toward the, um, up toward the pelvis. Again, here we are mobilizing the ureter below. We're spatulating it. Um, and I'm spatulating, and you can see that is completely dead. So we use some ICG. You can obviously, on white light, it's dead, but on the green, it was even clearer where the um, blood flow was. And we did a nephropexy, just like Sam said, that's what these clips are for. We pulled the ureter down. We were able to do a end-to-end uh, -end anastomosis um, using a spatulated technique. And used, uh, this is 4-0 vicral suture to repair it. And then this obviously also needs to get stented. We don't have access to the urethra in this woman because we weren't planning on this. So we put the stent in over a wire. Um, and then we then reintroduce the wire through the hole. Um, again, because we don't want to put too much tension on the anastomosis. And I put the, I put the stent in after I close the back wall. I then slide the stent up into the kidney, as you can see here. Um, goes very easily, very smoothly. Once I get it in, I take out the wire and then I complete the anastomosis. I get some more ICG, good functioning kidney. I got good flow around it. And then just for the heck of it, I do an omental wrap to make sure that I got the ureter completely cleaned, uh, completely uh, revascularized. So it's like an extra step uh, to help protect it uh, from a potential urinoma, as well as to give it extra blood supply. And I would say omentum is always your friend. And anytime you're doing anything reconstructively, I typically, I almost always wrap it with some momentum or put it in the area. They add blood supply and protection. Um, 
Here's another ureteral injury case. This is post-op, this is case number five. This is post-op date number two after UPJ repair. Now, this was not a regular UPJ repair. This was a 22-year-old male who had a multivehicle accident, had a ureteral avulsion. They put a nephrostomy tube in. They tried three different attempts to fix the ureter endoscopically. They couldn't. I did a pyeloplasty on him. And on post-op day two, I noted increased drainage. The Foley, I placed a Foley in and the drainage did not resolve. So uh, Jeremy, Jeremy, uh, if you want to speak up, what are your thoughts at this point? So I'll keep talking if, unless anyone wants to jump in. So anytime I got a leak uh, after a pyeloplasty, the first thing I do is I put a Foley in. If that doesn't solve the problem, then I got to investigate further. So um, we put a Foley in, it kept on leaking for another 12 hours. And then I took a picture and this is what I saw, that the ureter was completely avulsed from the actual kidney. And um, it was now, it was just not moving anymore. There was nothing going down. Um, this was actually a, a week or so after. So we opened up the nephrostomy tube, which he had. Um, we left the drain in until it closed. This, the, the leak, and then this is what we were left with about a week later, where you can see the stent has completely pulled out of the ureter and it's completely obstructed. So I now have to go back and do a fourth operation. So that's what this is. This is um, a video of that uh, fourth operation. This is the pre-op nephrostogram. So again, here I am digging out the ureter. I'm gonna slow this down. So um, at this point, what you're seeing is I've Cut, the ureter was never attached to the pelvis. So I freed the ureter up and I cut off the edge of the ureter where it was uh, looked ischemic and very inflamed. I then spatulated it anteriorly. And then what I did is because I was worried about um, having what we call tension on this, I did what's called an augmented ureteroplasty. So rather than spatulating this on both sides, uh, on opposite sides, one anterior, one posterior, I spatulated it anteriorly on both sides. So that way I brought, if you can look at my screen where I'm talking, I brought the back wall together and it left a diamond shape on the top wall. And so that's what you're seeing here. It's a little fast, so I apologize. But again, um, you can see where, I'm gonna just show you this picture. This is the, oops. There we are with the spatulation on the top. There we are at the spatulation. Uh, that's the, that is the uh, pelvis I'm cleaning up. There's some nice green there. There we are cutting out the dead edge. We're spatulating anteriorly on the ureter. There's the pelvis open. I'm then bringing the pelvis back wall to the ureter, back wall together. I then uh, run the anastomosis posteriorly. And at this point, I have a nice wide, um, opening in the anterior wall of this anastomosis. So right here, you can see there's the posterior plate, there's the pelvis, there's the ureter. And now I'm gonna take a piece of buccal mucosa and I'm gonna lay that on top of uh, this, this diamond shaped defect. And again, I'm gonna use omentum as its uh, blood supply. And then again, we just put the uh, buccal mucosa on. That's what it looks like intraoperatively with the buccal mucosa on the anterior surface making sure there's no um, leakage. And then I bring over the um, fat itself around it. So again, if the ureteral injuries 
um, are, you know, are, this is just what it schematically looks like. Um, again, this was the pelvis. We opened it anteriorly on both sides. We brought the back wall together. And then we had this diamond shape where we then patched it with the buccal mucosa. Um, so three ureal, uh, two ureal injuries, one was a primary, one was a buccal. Um, but these are things you want to be thinking about. And like Sam said, tension-free, good blood supply, um, and a watertight anastomosis. Okay. So uh, this is the importance of an assistant. This is an old, old case. If anyone remembers this white, that's a standard robot. I don't think that's an SI. Um, this was when I was doing a three-arm uh, nephrectomy. Here you can see a small little bleeder here. And here's, you know, the resident going, we had two ports in, they're going through the wrong port. And you can see sort of the importance of an assistant. You know, we took a little bleeding and um, we turned it into a bigger problem because now he put the clip on the wrong side of the artery. He put it on the take side, not the stay side. And we still see it bleeding. You're starting to see the blood well up. Um, it's now 45 seconds. I'm stamping my foot. And so again, we really, the reason we ask you to go into the lab, the reason we ask you to practice uh, in simulation, the reason why we want you to be working um, as a side surgeon before we sit down as the consult, so you understand the importance of the side surgeon and you become a good side surgeon. Here's another example. This was a live surgery case by my friend, Dr. Raju. Uh, he just did a partial nephrectomy and look what just happened. He was waiting for his assistant to come in and the, the assistant clutched the arm. You can see he, as you see right here, he clutched the arm and put the instrument in. So remember, it has its own memory. You don't want to clutch the arm and not look at it. You want to either put it in. I always look at the screen as you're putting in. But if you are clutching the arm, go super slow. So he obviously thought that it was going to remember the position the way he put it in, but he inadvertently clutched the arm. And we'll just show that again um, in slow motion. And there we go. I just I like the slow motion one. There you go. Literally, okay, literally a millimeter from taking down the cava, okay? So again, it's, you know, we keep hammering this into the residents, how you have to know the instrumentation, you have to know your tools, you shouldn't be using unless you know everything about it. That's why we're so focused on it because we don't want things like this happening. Something super simple, it's just exchanging an instrument out, could have taken this guy's cava in, in two. Um, so again, don't clutch and blindly insert. Um, let's go over some excisional injuries during partial nephrectomy. Um, these are things that all happened to me as well as others. And so hopefully you'll learn from our mistakes. Um, this is a older video. Um, again, this is a XI and uh, excuse me, a standard system. And what happened is I'll start the video here. Um, here was one excisional line that we made and here was the other excision line. So we took an ultrasound probe and when we were marking it out, we found that this was the initial excision line. And then we did it again for some reason. I can't remember, this was many years ago. And we made another excision line. So I didn't go and use the initial excision line. I went closer on the theory that I wanted to save more parenchyma. And I thought this would have given me enough margin. So as I'm going through this, I realized that I am literally cutting into the tumor right here. So what you're gonna see now is how not to do this. So what I did is I kept, you'll see what you should do when you see this happen, you should stop. You should then go back to the original excision line and try to take it all out on block. 
you do not want to just start continuing to cut um, like we did. And here we are, we're cutting, um, and we clearly, we know we're cutting through the tumor, we're just doing the wrong thing. And my thought was, oh, I'll just get it out and I'll just cut some more. And you're gonna see how, why, why that's so difficult to do. Number one is, um, maybe we had a little bit of bleeding, which we had to control. But number two is, it's gonna be very hard to lift up on this tumor, which is right over here, and to cut it out. So again, I go back to the initial excision line, but I'm really struggling here um, as I'm cutting it out. You're gonna see me take multiple stabs at this to get it out. I've shown this video many times. Many have suggested I should take the kidney out at this point. Um, I still agree that this was the right thing to do because um, I've, you know, I've already burned the bridge sort of thing. Um, I've already gotten to a problem. Taking the kidney out, I don't think it's gonna necessarily make it any better to fix. Um, and I finally get underneath it. I take the whole thing out as a pancake and then I take some more biopsies. But again, I would argue here, if this was to happen, don't do what I do. Stop and just go and create a new excision line. And then take a bunch of biopsies, frozen, uh, real frozen, like not up in the cortex, but deeply to make sure that you got it all out. Here's an example of a selective clamp that's gone bad. So here I am, I'm cutting out the tumor. Uh, you can see I don't have the whole thing selectively clamped. And so now I'm getting into bleeding. And so the points I wanna make here is that when you're doing the excision and you see a lot of bright blood coming at you that's squirting across the screen, you have two options. You can go back and you can um, try to refine the artery and, and, and clamp the artery again or find a new artery if you were, because obviously you missed it. Or you can do what I did here, which is to put a suture in and sort of suture and cut as you go. The reason I chose this option, because you, if you get a sense of this, this person is very fat, we got a lot of sticky fat, and finding the hyalin to begin with was difficult. So I was concerned that I would A, really increase the clamp time, and B, struggle finding the hyalin. Now there are tricks to find the renal artery, um, and I would say the best trick that I know is a, re, is a Doppler. So VTI, vascular technology, makes a Doppler probe. It's a drop-in probe. Um, I can share all this information with you guys. Uh, just email me. Um, and it's easy, very easy to find it. But in this case, we chose to do the second option, which was just cut and sew. So here I am, that's bleeding. Okay, let's just see that again. Um, so that's not, that is not a vein. That's an artery. When you see it squirting up and hitting the, the, the anterior abdominal wall, that's an artery. So at that point, again, you can just put pressure on it, look for the, another artery using the tools I discussed, or you can just grab a suture and start cutting and sewing. So here I am, I got my assistant putting pressure on it. I've put a suture through the capsule once already, and I just now keep on suturing until I can see a little better. Now I have enough visualization to see. So now I cut again, and again, there's some more bleeding. So then I again switch my, my arm, I take the suture, and I suture uh, as, as I'm cutting, and I finally get to the part of the tumor where there's no more bleeding, I got good blood supply, and I stop. So that's sort of how to manage um, that. Um, this is an interesting case that just happened to me this week, or actually three weeks ago, and I wanna thank Mike Fang, uh, someone from uh, New York Medical College who uh, edited this up for us pretty quickly. Um, but this was a case of a, uh, 50, a 48 year old male 
with uh, CKD, uh, GFR of like 45, um, obesity. Um, he also had um, a pretty large tumor that was like four and a half centimeters. He had diabetes and hypertension. So I really wanted to do a partial on him. I didn't want to take his kidney out. Um, and so there's the, there's the picture of the tumor, um, just to sort of, uh, there we go. So it's a pretty big endophytic tumor. You can see it's going you know, into the sinus right here. Um, this is not a partial on the other side. This was just the way the, uh, the image was cut. He's got a normal kidney on the other side. I decided to do this retroperitoneally because you can see it's facing posterior, it's not facing anterior. So this is a retroperitoneal approach. Um, this is just very quickly showing how we set up the retroperitoneum. We find the artery, uh, we find the vein, we found the tumor. We now isolate the tumor using the uh, ultrasound probe. And I'm just gonna get to this part. I like to control, and now we're cutting out. And you know, as we're cutting, we got good visualization. Um, it's got a pretty thick capsule, as you see. And as I get to the, the middle of the kidney here, notice how I'm sweeping with my hand. Like once I'm in the fat, I'm sort of lifting up with my left hand and I'm pushing down with my, with my right hand. So I don't wanna cut so much sharply here. I wanna sort of identify the hilar structures here. I wanna find that artery. I wanna see if there's a vein there. I wanna see if there's a collecting system there. I wanna try to minimize the damage to this area as much as possible. So here we are. And then all of a sudden I come across this. And this is, could be a collecting system. It could be a vein. I'm not really sure. Let me take a little bit more. I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm putting it on stretch. I've worked my way around it. And now I decide I'm gonna cut into it, okay? And so I'm pretty sure now that this is a vein and there may be a thrombus in it. So at this point, you could absolutely say, we're done. We're taking this kidney out. We've done everything we needed to do. Um, he's got T3 disease. It's in the vein. We got to be done with this. And I think that is an absolutely correct answer. I did not chose that route because I thought I could get this vein, this thrombus out uh, intact. And because of all the other issues that he had, I made the decision to go ahead and to try to excise it. So there we are, we opened it up. And again, I still haven't burned the bridge, but I could clearly see there's thrombus there. I have my assistant go in, I go, listen, we gotta suck that out, like put, pull it out. I have a very, very good assistant, Susie Soren, and we pulled the thrombus out of the vein and I attached it and then I put it into a bag. So now what happens is this. So I get a, the anesthesiologist, as soon as I did that, goes, dude, we got a problem. I go, what's up? He goes, we just lost his entitled CO2. And his entitled CO2 went from 13 to about 12. So that means he's got a embolus right now, a CO2 embolus. And I never saw this before in my life. The only thing I know about embolus is that you're supposed to put him in Trendelenburg and put a, uh, a swan into his heart and suck out the, I think it's the, the right atrium. But we're in no position to do that. Um, he's on the table. He's left side up. Um, we have no access to the neck. And so he says, we'd make a decision together that his vitals are stable, his heart rate is stable, he's oxygenating okay. Let's just get this thing you know, closed and see what happens. 
And according to the anesthesiologist, most of these will resolve quickly on their own. And that's their experience. So I listened to them, I, they're the source expert. And again, uh, I made those sort of, I made that decision. You can see there's a huge opening in the vein. Um, I turned down the air seal. So the first thing I do is I cut the vein completely across. So there's the vein. Um, I put a clip on this side of the vein to make sure that we don't have any extra tumor, more tumor spilling. Um, I get the thing into a bag um, as quick as I can. And then we, again, we decrease the pneumo here to about eight. Um, I go, I take some margins uh, of the vein as well because, and the collecting system. So I'm worried, um, you know, though I'm pretty confident I got it. I'm not hundred percent. And that's where the repair is. So this is where we enter the vein. This is where we close the vein. This is about seven, eight minutes later. And you can see slowly as we finish the case, everything came back to normal. Um, and this patient ended up uh, doing very well. Um, we ended up closing you know, the vein, we closed the arteries, we had a good visualization. Um, and interestingly, so not, and a little surprisingly, uh, about two weeks later, he came back with gross hematuria and he was found to have a pseudoaneurysm, which we ended up just uh, fixing uh, using endoscopy, uh, using interventional radiology. So didn't expect that. He had good, uh, at the end of the case, he had good perfusion above and below. Everything looked great. He did fine. He was discharged in two days, but uh, came back two weeks later for a um, selective embolization. But has his kidney and his creatinine is still uh, what it was before surgery. And we will, time will tell if this was the right decision or not. But that's something. Um, and the other thing we did is he, I wanted to show you, is just because we, did, we weren't sure what to do after. Um, we, after the surgery, we put him in the supine position and we did, uh, we had the anesthesiologist do a transesophageal echocardiogram just to make sure there was no air left in any of the chambers of the heart. Um, and the other thing we did is we, um, and what's interesting, they call it a T1B, it's clearly a T, uh, a, a T3, but um, it's papillary type uh, one, and he did fine, and we extubated him in the recovery room. Um, okay, any questions about excision injuries? Okay, let's go to nephrectomy injuries. These are things that happen. So I went over how you can damage the ureter and fix it. I went over complications that can occur during excision. And I think the points I, I want you to take home there are you got to have a good visualization. If you can't see it, you can't do it. Number two is if you get into the tumor inadvertently, it's not the end of the world. Game's not over. Got to back up and re-excise it. Number three is if you see a, a fair amount of bleeding, you must stop what you're doing and you must uh, get the blood control better so you, so you can see. Otherwise, you'll end up with more of a problem. And number three is, and again, I don't know, this is a, it's an N of one, but uh, if you have a big opening into a vein when you're excising and you see that excision, you see the CO2 drop, I think if you close it quickly, and as long as the patient is stable, heart rate is good, blood pressure is good, you can continue on. And as per anesthesia, uh, this should resolve on its own. And in this case, it did. However, I would recommend uh, a TEE on the table just to document that everything is okay. So these are some nephrectomy injuries. Uh, th these are things that happen um, with, uh, with large blood vessels, okay? So these are, these are not good times. So um, this is 
Case number 10, this is a nephrectomy and an RPLND. Uh, I did an RPLND because she has a history of upper tract TCC, high grade. Um, she's post chemotherapy, which also can sometimes make the planes a little more indurated and more difficult. Um, and here we are. So this is the case. Um, this is the aorta. So um, what I like to do is do the uh, node dissection even before I take the kidney, just to at least prepare my medial edge of my node dissection. So here's aorta. Here's one renal artery, and back here, we're sort of sneaking out the other renal artery. Um, we brought this in, and this, and again, we did this stapler, and again, this is a couple of points here. You need to know your instrumentation. So this is not a stapler that I, I ever use. This stapler is designed so that you must see the back tips of the stapler. That is really important with the stapler, which I did not know. My assistant decided she wanted to use the stapler because she liked the rep and he wanted us to try it. So we did. We did not in-service ourselves well on the stapler. We did not know that this is a type of stapler that it doesn't fire all the way past the staple line. Or, and it does fire, but it cuts. But it's easier for this one to misfire. This is a stapler where, where the other stapler that we use without this little uh, thing to it, you can push past the point not see the tips and it will absolutely as long as it closes and fires everything will staple up to the area where the cut line is where this stapler you can close it and it will fire even if it doesn't have good apposition of the tissue so with that in mind this is what happened we put it in uh, we we put it blindly because that's what we're kind of used to when we have everything up um, we fire, wait 15 seconds, open, and we see a lot of blood. So now we stop, okay? Um, and now we have a real problem, because now we just basically put a hole in the aorta, and we don't know what to do. So this is an emergency. Um, you've now have a, mis a, 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 a staple misfire. Um, I'm gonna go and ask someone, Seth Cohen, could you tell me what you would do now? Michael Stern, I'll give you a shot. Anybody, any resident, tell me four things that they would do right now. Uh, keep the stapler on the uh, vessel to get some hemostasis. Anybody. Can you hear me? All right. That probably means that everyone is multitasking. All right. Well, I guess I'll have to tell you. I'm going to give it one more shot. Michael Cohen. Can you hear me? Stern, I mean. Is Stern, you on? Yeah, can you hear me? These are guys that I know. They'll get an email from me later. Yeah, the rest of us can, can hear Michael Stern. How about Nithya? Uh, I worked with Nithya before. I know she's a female urologist now, but she may know what to do. Dr. Stern. Nithya Abraham? No. Nope. Transfusion protocol. Nope. No one? Okay. Cell anesthesia and transfusion. Well, the first thing you, you're going to have to do is uh, get ready to change your underwear. Second thing you're going to do is the following, and this is super important. Um, a, you want to call for help. This is the time that you want to get some people in the room to help you, and I would call for a vascular surgeon, and that's exactly what I did. The second thing I did is I called for a rapid transfusion protocol. I asked for a second IV. I asked for an A-line, and I asked for everyone to get the equipment they need in the room. Because as you could see from the first video, by just closing the stapler back, not just pulling it out, but closing it, 
putting a little pressure on the aorta, there wasn't a lot of bleeding. So I had things under control. So at that point, with a vascular surgeon in the room, blood coming into the room, the, the A-line placed, the IVs placed, everyone taking a deep breath, we said, let's see if we can place a clip underneath this. Because we thought that, and I switched out to my own suction irrigation because she, she couldn't help me. The one thing I didn't do was put an extra cord in, which I should have done. So I said, let me see if I can just put a, a clip in because I knew where the artery was and maybe I can blindly put the clip in. So I do that and then I tweak the staple a little bit to see and I can see, no, that clearly did not work. So at this point, you really can't open um, unless you have a little more control. So what we decided to do um, is that we took out the fourth arm, which is what I like to put it in the lower quadrant, and I put a hand in. And the hand uh, was the hand of the vascular surgeon. And what that could allow us to do is we can put pressure on the aorta, take out the stapler now, I can go back to the instruments that I'm used to using, my partner can get an assistant in, and even if it doesn't work, we can hold pressure as we open. So that was a great you know, salvage trick. And I would always think about to yourself when you're struggling, especially with bleeding and you're having a hard time getting control or maintaining control, always think about putting a hand port in and you can always put your hand in there for pressure and no one's gonna fault you for that. So that's what we did. Um, and here's the, case, here's the piece to that. So we removed the fourth arm I replaced the gel port into uh, where the fourth arm was. Here comes uh, Dr. Uh, Napolitano with his hand. We now have pressure on it, and now we can release it. And so now I can switch to instruments that I can use to hold, and I put a clip on. And I got a clip on the artery, and it actually stopped bleeding. Here's my mistake, okay? This is what we call gilding lily. So I said, oh, let me just put one more clip. I don't feel comfortable for that. And what ends up happening is by me putting another clip on, I literally clip onto the aorta, which is already friable. And now I've just created a second hole. So now I'm really annoyed with myself when I say, okay, I need this to go with suturing. And you can see the hole that I created right over here from the clip. So I finally get pressure on it. I exchange his, his hand for pressure. There's the one hole that I have to clip. That was the main artery I clipped. There's the one hole. Susie was able to put a clip on that. So that's done. Here's the second hole now, which is in the ostium of the aorta. And now I'm going to use one of my favorite uh, sutures, a 4-0 Vicryl on an RB1 needle with a uh, lapper tie on it so I can lift up. And then I struggle, but I'm able to finally get control of this. And then I put another lapper tie on and we salvage the case and the patient does eventually fine. We got everything done. Um, and this is what it looked like at the end, a clip on the aorta, a suture on the ostium, and we're done. But I think that, you know, what I wanted you to really take home from that and the messages I want you to be prepared for is number one, don't fire stuff blindly. Even if you're really good and you've done this a lot, that's just a bad idea and bad things will happen. Number two, when you have bleeding like that, get pressure on it. That's the most important thing. Get some pressure. Once you have pressure, take a deep breath and get the things you need. You don't want to just go after it right away because if you fail and you have no backup, you're going to have a real problem. But if you fail and you have the right people in the room and you have the blood and you've got the A-lines and you've got the monitors, you'll do much better. 
So please uh, make sure you do that. Um, next case. So this is, again, I'm going to try to get uh, participation here. So this case is not mine, but this is a good friend of mine. Um, this is a case you do all the time. This is a, a right nephrectomy. There's the renal vein. There's the renal artery. And here comes the stapler. Okay, I'm going to stop right now. Can anybody, and I'll buy you a Starbucks um, gift card, if anyone can tell me what is wrong with this picture? Anybody? Is there a clip? How about our host from hey, Columbia? Right can you tell us what's wrong with the picture? Dr. Stifleman, can you hear me? Dr. Stifleman? Yes. Okay. The yes. Stapler isn't loaded correctly. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of people commenting. I don't know if you can hear them, um, but they're saying the stapler may not be loaded. Got it. Um, but, I, but I answered that, so I'll take the Starbucks gift card. You got it. So you get that start, and that's not. And so this is what happens on the old staplers when they're not loaded. And I think there may have been more comments earlier, and for some reason I may have been muted, or someone had muted me. Right? So we have more cases to show, so we're good. Okay, that's a problem. Um, so again, you, you, everything we learned before, I want you to be thinking about now. You know, you, so now, the, what happened here in this case is that the cartridge got pulled out, so they couldn't keep pressure. They're trying to put pressure on it, it's not working. So they had, to take, they had to take it out, they put a sucker in, and you can see his left hand here is trying to find where the pulsation of blood is coming out of the vena cava, or the vein. And you can see it's right over here. You can see right here. Easy for me to say as a quarterback. And he, he repositions, and now he gets some pressure on it. And now things are a lot under more control because now he's got pressure on it. He can now take out the stapler, which misfired. And now he's going to put a new state. Now he's got, he grabbed it, and now he can put a new stapler in underneath it And because he salvaged it. Now, what do you think about this case allowed him to salvage it. It's where the stapler was placed. And so here's another thing I would say. If you don't have tumor in a thrombus, always try to leave yourself a little extra uh, space here between the kidney and the cava, whenever possible. So that way, if you have a problem like this, you could easily put a clip or something underneath it. If you push this all the way down to the cava and you fire, then you're gonna have a bigger problem. So again, if there's no thrombus, uh, always do that because that's really what allowed him to save the case. And then he st filed the stapler underneath it and he was able to salvage it. Um, here's a 63-year-old male with a distorial tumor. Um, again, still upper tract, requiring extended pelvic lymph node dissection. Again, post-chemotherapy. And again, what, what I sort of learned, at least anecdotally, is with the post-chemo patients, the vessels are more friable. They are easy to bleed. Um, and also, this is an older patient who also had some atherosclerotic disease. So get in the habit of looking at the film uh, beforehand, see if there's a lot of calcifications within the arteries, and um, also post-chemo, be a little more uh, careful. So this is external iliac, internal iliac. Uh, there's the ure ureteral tumor. We've just completed our, our lymph node dissection. This looks like uh, 
probably the superior uh, artery going to the bladder, superior vesicle artery. Here we go. And now the clip fell off, okay? All right, so now I can hear anybody. What would you do here? I should go for the Starbucks gift cards. Okay. What clamp proximal? Okay, what would you use to clamp it? Your instrument just temporarily. Okay. All righty. That's a great idea. Any other ideas? All right. I like this guy who said that because that's exactly what I did. So because I have this so well dissected out, I just did a you know, 45 minute extended pelvic lymph node dissection on this guy. I got the entire internal iliac artery completely free. So um, that's exactly what I did. And this is a case you're not gonna be able to put another clip on. This clip fell off, it looks terrible. So I have pressure, I switch out my right hand, I put a bulldog in, and now I, uh, I clamp just a little bit beyond the vein there. Put the clamp on, let go, and now there's very little bleeding. And now I take my favorite suture, I call this the rescue suture. This is a 4-0 proline suture on an RB. I uh, tie it about four inches back, four centimeters or five centimeters. I put a lapper tie on. So that way, once I put it on, even one throw, I can release this hand and hold it up. And even if I don't, I can still do it one-handed. Um, and then I go ahead and I finish closing it. And then the last thing I do is I take off the clamp and then you could, I, what are the two ways uh, that I talked about today that you could evaluate the blood flow to the internal iliac artery distally? Anybody? Two ways after this that I could make sure that I haven't caused ischemia to the internal iliac artery, which by the way, it's really not the end of the world if that happens, but just for confirmation, on your op report, what, what could you do? Doppler. Which Doppler? You can use an ultrasound Doppler. You can use a Doppler from VTI. Anything else? Um, and it looks like Ethan Frampton, ICG, the green light. Uh... Exactly. And I would do that for sure. I would just confirm there's, there's blood flow back there. Um, oh, this is a good case. This is a um, retroperitoneal case, um, whereas, uh, again, 66-year-old male. I just started doing retroperitoneal cases probably within the last few months or so. Um, this is not, you know, this is like 10 years ago. And I came across this. So I'm doing this surgery and I'm super zoomed in here and I'm looking at this artery and I'm going, this doesn't look right. Okay, it looks, looks like it's way too um, securitous. It, it, it's just too, you know, it's wrapping around too much. And what I did is, can anyone tell me what, I, what artery that is and what I did wrong? So I'll give you some hints here. This is the aorta here. This is the kidney and the hilum on stretch. This is underneath the kidney. So I have now <clears throat> gone basically past the kidney. I've, I've dissected along the aorta past where the renal artery is, what vessel would you think would be here? There's two vessels that you could consider. One would be the SMA, 
and the other would be um, the IMA, I mean the, uh, the splenic artery. So <clears throat> either one you don't want to take inadvertently. So again, the sort of take home points I'm showing here is um, when you're dissecting out structures and you're not 100% sure where you are, back up, okay? Give yourself a global view. Don't just say really focused in, you need to back up. And that's exactly what I did when I backed up. I realized what I did was I went literally, you know, all the way underneath the kidney and I'm staring at the SMA. And when in reality, this is the renal artery over here. So that was the SMA over here, super medial. And this is the renal artery over here. So again, you can easily be tricked and fooled. Don't want to take that down. That's bad. Definitely want to be able to clamp that other artery. That's good. So again, retroperitoneally, when you're doing cases, um, be careful, especially in the beginning, that you don't dissect too immediately. And if you're not sure what it is, back up. Um, almost done. Uh, this is a case of, I just finished a partial nephrectomy. And you can see this all looks great. I'm super happy. Hyalur tumor. Got my Y closure. And I see there's a hole right here. And I see a lot of billowing. So what do you think caused that hole? Anybody? Well, I'll tell you. It was a retractor. It was a retractor that I was using to lift up the liver. And I grasped it over here and on the pleura, on the sidewall. And as I was moving my arm, I must have whacked the retractor and I put a hole in it. So I don't actually use retractors anymore. Externally, I use my fourth arm as a retractor. So super easy to fix. Um, I put a, a V-lock suture in here. Um, I, I basically uh, put like a, a whip stitch in it, but I don't close it. Then once I have it completely surrounded the hole, I put my sucker in. I uh, decrease the pneumo, suck it out, and then Valsalva all at the same time, and then close it. And now, because I got the V-lock, it doesn't lose tension. Put a couple extra sutures in for good luck. And then what I do is, similar to what happened with the CO2 embolism, at the end of the case, I uh, do a chest x-ray to make sure there's no pneumo. Because if there is a large pneumo, I could do, I'd rather do it intubated than do it in the recovery room. So I am exactly on time at 8.58. Um, I want to thank all of the folks that have supported me over the last 20 years. Most importantly, my medical students that I've worked with and the residents, uh, as well as fellows who really push me. I want to thank the attendings who have given me some amazing ideas and have supported me through many of these complications, as well as the mentors who also, you know, whose shoulders I um, stand on. Finally, I'll leave you with this last quote. Uh, there's two very good quotes, very similar, both business guys. This one is from Warren Buffett. It's good to learn from your mistakes, but it's better to learn from other people's mistakes. Um, I would argue this is what this lecture is all about, sharing my dirty laundry with you so that you can learn from my mistakes and think about them as you're doing it and to prevent them. And as Donald Trump says, and I'm not, not saying I'm a huge fan of Donald Trump, but a very similar line, it's better to learn from other people's mistakes because it's a lot less expensive. And it's, does, it's a very similar way. A lot less stress when you can learn from others. So with that, I think I've got two minutes to answer any questions you have. And then if not, I'll let you begin your day. And thank you very much for joining me.
Thank you, Dr. Sutton. This was uh, such a, an amazing uh, talk and really appreciate you going through those videos and cases and trying to get everyone involved. There were many, many people who were commenting. I don't know what happened in terms of the, the mic, but they were getting all the answers right. So I awesome. all your awesome. residents, whoever participated, they were doing their thing. Good. Um, I don't have to call anybody up. That's <laughs> No, no, they, they did amazing. One, one question, just really quickly, but in respect for your time. Um, uh, Dr. Fram had asked, you know, at centers where retroperitoneal approaches are just limited with regards to partial um, or just approaches to the kidney, how would you recommend increasing exposure to this kind of technique? I mean, if transperitoneal um, was the only option, they got very limited retroperitoneal. Is there anything you'd suggest for their training? Yeah, I mean, you could sort of take it in baby steps, right? So you could, and I'm happy to give another talk at any point you want on, you know, techniques of partial nephrectomy and or specifically retroperitoneal partial nephrectomy because I'm a huge fan of that. Um, but you could take some baby steps. Uh, one thing you could consider is you could make the incision. Uh, you could set up yourself like a you know, transperitoneally, but rather than go the classic this way, make it more along the posterior, you know, along like the fan seal one or, you know, above your... Um, you know, just below your belly button, like between your fan seal and belly button and make it horizontal, the incisions, okay? And then you go up to the kidney and you look at and you find the kidney that way. Um, the other way is to just really watch some videos and how we do it. Um, I, these are on YouTube. I've developed a 15 minute video where I put my uh, GoPro on my head and I went through every single step. Um, you can invite a surgeon to come and spend a couple a day with you and do a couple of cases and teach you how to do it. Um, or you can just jump into it, but it's not a hard operation to do. Certainly what I would pick if you're going to try this is obvious, the, the obvious things. Don't find someone obese. You know, you want a woman, you want someone skinny, you want a posterior lesion in the mid to upper pole and a small exophytic tumor. Something where you're not focused so much on cutting the tumor out, but you're focused on the actual procedure itself. Yeah. Those would be great people to start with. Same way those would be good people to start with uh, partials. Sure. Well, um, again, thank you so, so much um, for your talk, for being a part of this series. Um,